Just a few moments from the Cinderella Hour, and now for the climax of the 1958 Mr. pageant here in Birch Park on the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, the time is fast approaching when we will have the decision as to the title of Miss America. The announcement we're going to make, one will be the first runner-up, the other will be Miss America. The first runner-up, Jody Elizabeth Shattuck, Miss Georgia, Miss America, Miss Colorado! On Saturday, September 7, 1957, Marilyn Van Derber was crowned 1958's Miss America in Atlantic City. She was a 20-year-old Phi Beta Kappa scholar at the University of Colorado. She later moved to New York City, becoming the TV spokeswoman for AT&T's Bell Telephone Hour, and hosted 10 episodes of Candid Camera, as well as five Miss America pageants. In 1975, she established the Marilyn Van Derber Motivational Institute. May I ask you your reactions at this moment, Ms. Vanderbilt? I certainly hope that I will be as good a Miss America as Mary McKnight has been. Thank you, and God bless you all. And now, Miss America of 1958, there is the runway. There are your subjects. Please to join us. When she was 53, she revealed herself to be the victim of incestual abuse from her father. Her story was featured on the cover of People magazine on June 10, 1991. She and her husband Angel invested in Adult Incest Survivor Program at the Kempe Center and founded the Survivors United Network. Monday, September 9th, President Eisenhower signed the Civil Rights Act of 1957. The law was the first civil rights legislation since 1875. Deep South Democrat leaders were resisting desegregation. In this midst, Eisenhower proposed a civil rights bill designed to provide federal protection for African-American voting rights against state and local law. The law also established a U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and a Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. That day, the Hattie Cotton Elementary School in Nashville, Tennessee, admitted one African-American student, Patricia Watson. She was six years old. Shortly after midnight on September 10th, dynamite was set off at the east end of the school's entrance hall. It tore down walls and knocked out every window, forcing the school to close for nine days. When it reopened, Patricia's mother had her transferred to an all-black school. The act was condemned by Nashville Police Chief Douglas E. Hasse, who offered $7,000 in a cash reward for any information. Six suspects were detained, but no one was ever charged.
Biography and sound began when NBC newsman Joseph O. Myers was assigned to produce a documentary on Winston Churchill for his 80th birthday on November 30, 1954. He felt blending actualities of the subject's voice with recollections of his friends, associates, and antagonists could prove successful. A vast resource was available at NBC. Myers had been building a tape library of interview clips since 1949. In five years, more than 150,000 historic statements had been recorded and indexed. Myers had Bennett Cerf tell Churchill anecdotes, Laurence Olivier and Lynn Fontaine read from British poetry, and sound effects and music were added for drama. Myers' finished product was cheered around the industry. He had done the impossible, said Radio Life, turning people's attention once more to radio. The clamor for another show was immediate and loud. A month later, Myers answered with a piece on Ernest Hemingway, again to great acclaim. A biography of Gertrude Lawrence followed in another month, and in February, it was decided to run the series weekly. On Tuesday, September 10, 1957, at 9.05 Eastern Time, biography and sound, Danny Kay, took to the air over NBC. This is Walter O'Keefe, bringing you in the next hour a special Nightline feature well-known to listeners of NBC Radio. That would be another in our award-winning series of biographies and sound. Everything ready? I don't know whether we ought to play it or not. But for heaven's sakes, why not? Because I think people will begin to believe that we're on the show merely to talk about me, and that is completely true. No argument about that, Danny Kay, for our subject tonight is you. The Prince of Clowns, the story of a merry madcap, another in the transcribed series of biographies and sound. Within the next 55 minutes, the voices of those who know best, that startling combination of the meek and the mad, Danny Kaye. Your narrator, Walter O'Keefe. Where does the story of an extraordinary talent really begin? Perhaps with Danny Kaye as a youngster, hating regimentation as he moved through the quick and dreary scenes of childhood. Or maybe from the first explosive moment he excited critics and conquered every ermine on Broadway. Or perhaps it really doesn't begin until the day a clown turned ambassador traveled over half the world playing Pied Piper to 40 million youngsters. Danny has a theory that people become not what they want to become, but what they must become. Bob McElwain, close friend and business associates, he feels that there's some inner drive and inclination within everyone which directs them in the course that their careers follow. He himself wanted to be a doctor, and he still has a deep and abiding interest in medicine. There's nothing he would rather do than watch a difficult operation. But uh, he became an entertainer, he feels, because he had the need to make people laugh and to amuse others, and... Uh, that there was actually nothing else he could have become or ever would be. Given name, David Daniel Kaminsky, introduced on this mortal stage during the latter hours of a chill January day in 1913, the place, New York. Hey, watch your language, Cupid. <laughs> what do you mean, New York? It's Brooklyn. Born on the corner of Abraham and Strauss. <laughs> do you know Brooklyn? 
Bushwick Avenue, DeKalb Avenue, <laughs> Brighton Beach. You ever been to Brooklyn? So don't come to Brooklyn. Who needs you? Pardon, a geographical error. For a moment, we forgot New York is really only a suburb. Brooklyn, it is. And in a neighborhood so tough that the wags used to say if you had teeth, you were a sissy. We lived in an apartment and house in the Brownsville section of Brooklyn. Larry Kay, Danny's oldest brother. It was a poor neighborhood. There were ordinary people, working people. My dad was a designer and was pretty rough going for a while, for quite some while. But uh, we were a happy family. Danny always did have a very nice voice and he sang pretty well. In fact, I think he took after my mother and father who were not entertainers, but uh, they were a pretty jolly couple and any time they had parties or anything like that, they were the life of the party, so to speak. And he sort of took after them a little bit. No silver spoons in the K household. Always an imaginative child with an early gift for mimicry, Danny is the only theatrical product anywhere in his family before and since. In the early days, life focused on the candy store down the block and public school 149. 149 is the school for me. Drives away all adversity. Steady and true, we'll be to you. Loyal all to 149. Rah, 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 raise on high the red and white. Cheer it with all your might. Hey, good old 149. Hooray for 149, good old 149, I remember it well. Dr. Lou Eisen, he's known Danny since they were both six years old. In school, he was on a junior varsity in swimming, he did pole vaulting, track, and uh, baseball. Loved to catch, be a catcher. We used to go out on dates together and uh, parties, we used to entertain at parties, and we enjoyed singing. And uh, we began to harmonize and singing in social clubs and various functions. We belonged to a fraternity, we used to sing there. We won silver loving cups. We had a lot of fun as kids. Uh, one particular thing, uh, when uh, we were about 18, I think it was, we were going down a, a Broadway to make our way, you know, and uh, see agents you know, to get bookings for jobs and so forth. And we'd sit in the train, and uh, it was comfortably crowded with a few people standing around. And we'd be uh, sitting there, just minding our own business, and then the train would come into a tunnel, you see, and it gets deathly quiet at that particular time. All of the hum is gone, talking is gone, there's a hush in the train. And he let out an earth-piercing scream, so one guy jumped up on a fan. <laughs> I was so embarrassed, I had to run out of the train, that he died laughing. But there was not always laughter. There were those awful days of anguish when Danny's mother suddenly died. He was only 13 years old. The boy began to lean heavily on his father. He had a very rare and understanding father. Sylvia Fine Kay, Danny's wife. And where other parents might have um, needled him about going to work or getting a job, Danny's father somehow sensed that Danny needed to find himself. 
Danny says he would sometimes wake up and find $5 under his pillow. Now, for Danny's father to leave $5 under his pillow at that time was a great deal of money. And when neighbors or relatives would say to Danny's father, what about this boy of yours who's grown up and looks strong and healthy? What's he doing sleeping all morning, you know, and doing nothing at all? Danny's father would say, well, I make believe he's going to college. And pretty soon he'll make up his mind what he wants to do. Danny tried everything. He went to work for a friend of his father's, but he felt trapped and hated it. He fizzled as an insurance underwriter. A $40,000 mistake didn't help any. Finally, Danny gravitated toward the Borse circuit. The unofficial name, which Broadway long ago pinned on a chain of summer hotels in the Catskills. Difficult to work, they are, but an extraordinary training ground for entertainers. One of them, the White Row Hotel. I was a social director at this place, and Danny had come up as a singing act. Phil Goldfarb, who became one of Danny's closest friends. In this particular place, uh, we were on tap uh, 24 hours a day. We were always working, particularly on rainy days or if uh, things got a little rough and the weather was bad, we had to put that much effort into, uh, into our work in order to keep the people there. Many times uh, uh, Danny had liked to, uh, used to like to sleep kind of late and uh, if uh, it looked pretty bad in the morning, up came the... Uh, the boss, and uh, he would uh, knock on our door, and he'd say, get up, uh, you gotta pep up the crowd. We did a lot of crazy things. I would chase him through the uh, dining room while people were trying to have their noonday meal. He uh, would put on a chef's hat or a cook's hat, and I would take the chef's hat and a meat cleaver and just run right through for a laugh, go right through the dining room and then come back again into the kitchen. Anything which happened within eyeshot or earshot became material for Danny's wacky sense of humor. During his fourth season on the wheel, Kay joined the vaudeville troupe, played 48 one-night stands to the West Coast, and then toured the Orient. That was La Vie Paris. We can gently call it the biggest turkey with dressing on the road. Dave Harvey, head man in the act, the three Terps of Koreans. Our work as a trio, trio Harvey, Young, and Kay, in La Vie Paris, was uh, uh, rather like uh, doubling in brass. We were originally a, a dancing trio, but we did bits, everything imaginable. Danny did straight and comic. I did straight and comic. As a matter of fact, we uh, did 14 changes each show. Danny's natural sense of comedy just couldn't be held down. And it would burst out and come forth in the funniest places. When we first arrived in Tokyo, after rehearsal one night, Danny and I went out to get some scrambled eggs. We finally found a restaurant open. We went in and tried to make ourselves understood that we wanted some eggs. We drew pictures and showed them with our hands what we wanted. So finally, I went into my act and scratched the floor and cackled, cackled, sat down. Danny flapped his hands and crowed, got up, Said, oh, so I saw us. Ah, yes, yes. You know what we got, don't you? Fried chicken. Confronted with non-English speaking audiences, as well as waiters, 
It was here that Danny developed the pantomiming art and the whole arsenal of face-making techniques.